You all set for retirement, mate? Yeah. My sis will look after me. Claire, did you win the lotto? Not my sister. My C-Bus super income stream. Sis. Right. With as little as $80,000 super, Sis works with the pension to provide a steady paycheck even after you retire. Seabus for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDF. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is the second time we've done this in 2021, but we made a great many of these last year. And if you're new to the final word, you might be wondering what on earth is this all about? Why are you guys releasing a podcast on a Saturday? Nobody releases a podcast on the Saturday. Are you crazy? Well, yes, maybe we are a little bit crazy, but we are so engaged with the stories that we want to tell that they sometimes come out on the weekend as well. That's a terrible intro. I'm doing the whole thing again. No, no, it's a great intro because it actually has two Billy Joel references there. One is it's nine o'clock on a Saturday, the regular podcast shuffles in. And the other is you may be right, I may be crazy, but it just may be a lunatic you're looking for. <laughs> so we're, we're keeping that intro because that is the first Billy Joel specific introduction all right, all that right. we've had on the final word. I like it. Or, or we could also go with, uh, oh, we're never going to survive unless <laughs> we are a little crazy. Right. Okay. So what's this all about, Jeff? What we do is we, we tell stories based around the numbers that are sent to us ever so kindly by our patrons. And if you want to support us on Patreon, mm-hmm. we'll explain that through the show. Then we take the number and we tell a story based on the history of cricket. And it works pretty well. Yep. It does work pretty well, and it's called Storytime, and it's based on the game of Nerd Pledge, which is the numbers game. But what we're going to do today is things a little bit differently. We're not going to do any new Nerd Pledge numbers because we have a large number of numbers that we haven't properly solved yet. We're completists on Nerd Pledge, so if we don't get the number right, we like to come back and do it again. And, and given we've had a bit of a Storytime break over December, we've got a lot of numbers from previous shows that we haven't done. So it, this is the clean-up app. This is the mopping-up operation, as it were, <laughs> we'll go through and have our last crack at some numbers that we haven't got. Look, if we don't get them by now, as Ricky Gervais saying, if you don't know me by now, you will never, <laughs> ever, ever know me. So we, we may be giving up, waving the white flag. But I think before we do that, before we get into Nerd Pledge per se, there's another segment of the show sometimes, and this is called Julio Pledge, because not everybody who, who subscribes to support the show does it with a nerd number. Not everyone's a nerd, some are Julios, and some say, I'm not messing about with this number business, I'm just giving you a straight couple of bucks, three bucks, five bucks, whatever it might be, and we love and appreciate our Julios as well. So I just want to front and centre the Julios for the start of this show. Okay. And, and instead of starting with Nerd Pledge, we'll start with Julio Pledge. <laughs> does that work? Can we do I think it does. I mean, and again, the reason okay. we're going into what this is all about, maybe we need to explain Julio's as well. We picked up a, a number of new listeners mm. to the final word over the last few weeks after our India dailies. In fact, it feels quite weird that we're not talking about the Australia-India test series. I've only just calmed down mm. from our recordings earlier in the week from, from the Gabba. I'm now in Melbourne. You're still in Brisbane as we put this to the recorder at the very least. So what is a Julio, Jeff? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna work on the assumption that that's a very nineties Australian cricketing reference and it may not be in the hitting zone of some of our listeners. It is. One of the one of the gifts, the varied in quality gifts that Shane Warne left to the world was the division 
of Australian cricketers into nerds and Julios. Now, I don't know if it's sort of me and Julio down by the schoolyard or whatever it may be, but nerds and Julios, that was the split. And so the, the people who are really into their, their numbers, they're our nerd pledges. They're the ones who say, you know, they've got a real thing about the number 687 and they want us to figure out what it is. Well, Julios, well, they ain't got time for that. They're like... Here's $2, take it or leave it, and we will take it, and we will appreciate it. Yeah, so throughout the course of the 90s, when you joined the Australian team, you were put into one camp or the other. You are a nerd, or, or you were a Julio. And I always found some of the categories that players were put into quite curious, but Steve Waugh's diaries used to go into some depth around this, and the 99 World Cup, the famous underarm uh, Damien Fleming uh, run out to get Australia through to the final. The idea came from a, a night of bowling, 10-pin bowling, where it was nerds against Julios, and I suppose it came to uh, broader public awareness around that. So that's the idea. And our Julios, as you explained, are not messing around. So, Jeff, why don't I read out our Julios one after another yeah. and you can tell us where they fit in. Well, what I, what I try to do with the Julios, because I don't have a number to work with and I don't know anything about them, I just try to make things up entirely based on their names, <laughs> about who they might be, what they might be up to, and so on and so forth. All right, so Peter Polman. Peter Polman. Now, this is quite a... A sexy name, really. The Pole Man. He's sort of halfway between the Pool Man, but also the Pole, the pole Man, man. <laughs> if, if you see where I'm going. Hi, Peter, the Pole Man, ready to serve. And so I think that really speaks for itself, to be honest. Trent Grimes, brother of Frank. Yeah, no, Trent Grimes, I like to think of Trent Grimes as the disgruntled brother of... Grimes, the artist who has married Elon Musk, who's just like, every time he turns on the internet, Trent Grimes is like, oh, for fuck's sake, what did he put up now? You know, and he's always like, he's on the phone to mum and dad once a week being like, can you believe she married this dickhead? Like, you know, the sad billionaire. Um, like, Jesus Christ. And it's going to be really awkward at Christmas because Trent, Trent's a no-nonsense bloke. Trent Grimes, you know, doesn't muck around. And every time he's got a great little or however you pronounce the name he's just added up to here Trent Grimes Andy Slee Andy Slee for some reason every time I read Andy Slee's name I think of Andy Serkis who played Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies okay. mostly on motion sensors like the, the whole role was just him having motion sensors strapped all over his body but he still had to move in that extremely creepy way so I'm sorry Andy you're probably not as creepy as Gollum but for some reason it was a tour de force as far as the performance goes the voice and the movement you know to act that well without ever actually being personally on screen yourself Andy Serkis a remarkable performance I always think of Andy Lee as opposed to Andy Slee when his name comes up in our inbox oh, do anyway you? I do I do who, who okay. often well, that, is the that's man more who, like that's more crickety and Andy Lee's like wearing a tuxedo and stuff you know so that's a much more smooth end of the spectrum yeah and also often wearing the Australian tracksuit or the Melbourne Stars tracksuit telling jokes and doing other things like that Tom Fisher Tom Fisher, the Fisher King, as Tom is known around town. People stop and salute as the king goes by, often wearing the blue feathers of a kingfisher in the band of his hat, just as a, a little a little tip to the name. When he tips his hat, he tips his crown to you as well, the Fisher King. And the cousin of the principal, Don Fisher, of course, as well. Can never forget. Uh... <laughs> George Randall, who may or may not be a relation to Derek. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Derek Randall features prominently on this week's story time, as in fact Derek Randall is featured on almost every story time <laughs> because the centenary test of 1977 comes up all the time. Yep. So George Randall needs nothing else but to be part of the general Randall fest, the Randall love that rolls through the final word week to week. Adam Towns is when he comes and joins me. 
Oh, Winnie's coming in to join you. Well, Adam could not have picked a better time to be on the show because we just had the Billy Joel intro. And when I read that name, all I hear is, and we're living here in Adam Town. Because they're closing all the factories down. So welcome, Adam, to our Billy Joel edition. Hi, Winnie. She's on the screen. Yeah, Winnie's fascinated by the microphone that's in front of her. All good. She's going to play with that. Um, oh, if you've been watching the trait. India Daily, she now knows her way around a microphone. Sian Seymour. I reckon Kian here. I Kian. This is an Irish pronunciation. Kian okay. Seymour. Well, we do have a little bit of Irish cricket and a bit of Irish national politics on yes, we do. the show today. Consuational forms of government, or um, I'm not entirely sure how that's pronounced. But yeah, Kian is going to be well placed as a former advisor to the Irish president and with a lot to say on EU, you know, the transition, the soft border between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland, the subsequent concerns that have been rolling through UK politics for many years and I'm sure Kian will have um, ears very closely tuned to what we've got on the show today. Winnie's blowing you a kiss through the screen, Jeff, which is quite cute as well, <laughs> a, new, a new way of communicating. Adrian Sams, next up. There's only, only one thing you can think of when you see Adrian's name pop up. Adrian! <laughs> Adrian! <laughs> Which was, in many ways, the Stella of the 80s. You know, in, in the 50s, Streetcar Named Desire, it was Stella! And then Sylvester Stallone said, we're updating this. This has got to come into the modern age. Adrian! And that's how it works. James Dury. Now, I think we've had James Dury before. But this is an easy one for you. I, I know as soon as you see Jamie Dury's name pop up on the screen, you get excited. Uh, suddenly, suddenly it's the 1990s again. Suddenly that glass ceiling that existed between manpower involvement and hosting quality television shows was shattered by Jamie Dury, <laughs> naked and covered in grease, just smashed through it and slithered through the hole. Incredible work. And I'm sure James Dury has had this his whole life. But yes. as I've said on the show many times before, my name is Jeff Lemon, so I get to make the boring jokes about your names because I know what it's like. Next is Stephen Jones, who might be the Member of Parliament, possibly, maybe, maybe not. Either way, he's certainly a nerd pledger. No, he's a Julio pledger, better still. I like this as a, as a double act because Stephen Jones is followed by Mirage Vora. And Stephen Jones, I think if you had to pick a really basic sort of, I guess, Anglo slash Welsh, maybe fairly uninteresting name from our cultural perspective, Stephen Jones would be the name given to the spy character in some novel from Britain and Mirage Vora would be who Stephen was meeting up with in Budapest <laughs> to get the microfilm that was concealed inside an antique pocket watch, you know, to get back across the border in to Austria or whatever it may have been. So Stephen and Mirage, are, uh, they're twinned forever in that narrative. Isaac Hemming. Isaac, almost an AFL player. Isaac Heaney, Sydney Swans, uh, runs around yeah. in the forward pocket, if I'm not mistaken. So I like that. I get a sense of activity from Isaac, a sense of energy. All of this, it's a bit like when you get one of those big like horoscope birthday books that, that some people read and then they think they know everything about someone. I'm just getting that vibe from the name. It's just that name says, you know, decent beat test numbers to me. John McGill. John McGill, no relation to Stuart because missing an A, not a Mac Gill, but a McGill, which means that John is in the Jimmy McGill side of things, the uh, the sole Goodman, mm. you know, former identity of before making the change. And, and can I say, one of the small but really bad things about the pandemic has been delaying the 
final season of Better Call Saul, which, you know, we are going to be waiting far longer for than I'm happy with because all of the actors are going to be far too old to be playing their younger selves by the time it finishes. (laughs) Mark Zeri. Now, I'm I'm going with a Spanish pronunciation here because it's X-E-R-R-I, so I'm going Mark Sherry, but I'd like to think that Mark Sherry is the Spanish equivalent of James Sherry, <laughs> and, and that Mark Sherry is is at <laughs> is at the the El Super Clasico, you know, between Barcelona and Madrid. Mark Sherry is the guy who's out there at the halftime break saying in Spanish. So, what do you reckon? Who's going to get on top in the second half? Who are you cheering for today, guys? Barcelona. Oh yeah, go Barcelona. Oh, now we're going to have oh the the cannon that pops his squishy foam ball up in the air, and you have to try to catch it in your mouth. Can he catch it? Oh, he's dropped it. He's put it down. That's Mark Sherry, but he did all that in Spanish. We should be nicer to James Sherry because we really do want to get him on the show at some point. <laughs> Maybe that's possible. Maybe. I'm very nice to James Sherry. I just find it amusing that the idea of him doing the same job in Spanish. He, he serves a valuable purpose for stopping people getting bored in the five minutes that the cricket's not on. Ryan Thomas. Ryan Thomas, there's there's a little Welsh sort of um, tangent as well. We've got a little bit of Wales in the show today too. So yes. we've got Ireland, we've got Wales, we've got Ryan Thomas, we've got Kian Seymour. We're getting the the sort of full UK through to EU spread because I've I've seen news around saying that the Welsh would quite like to rejoin the European Union if they're allowed. The mood is changing in Wales, so perhaps Ryan Thomas can call up. Ryan Giggs and Gareth Thomas and so on and, and let us know what the mood is amongst the Welsh. Yeah, the Welsh nationalist movement is an interesting uh, discussion, maybe perhaps uh, for a different podcast, but if they did end up getting there one day, uh, mm. if we had, well, I guess it would be called Waxit or something if you were trying to apply what they're, they're doing in Western Australia at the moment, a few well-heeled businessmen trying to get out of the uh, Australian Commonwealth. Anyway, if that would be the case, it would make for a quite an interesting cricket conversation because English-Wales cricket board, I wonder if a, a Welsh team, a Welsh standalone cricket team, how they would go. Next up, Jeff, we have Mitch Diwal. Mike Diwal. I, I like this because this is like if you were a Dutch rail driver, you know, if you were if you were from the Netherlands but you were not going to let anybody pass. And and I also like the idea of we are going to build Mike Deval and we're going to <laughs> make Mexico pay for it. Um, yeah. How many how many miles of wall got built? I think about eighty miles out yes. of the 3,000 that that was supposed to happen. So, yeah, another, another roaring success. But Mike Deval, when when Deval goes up, no bowlers are getting through. Barat Agaval. A combination of two of our favourites, Barat Sundarason, a uh, popular contributor to the final word, and Mayank Agaval, who uh, did enough to help India get through to win the Border Gavaska Trophy. Put them together and you get Bharat Agarwal unstoppable with the bat or with the keyboard. Charlie Gresty. Yeah, this is, this is a politically contentious combination of Charlie Hebdo and Peter Gresty, who was arrested for many years in, in Egypt, and the other being the very, mm, uh, shall we say, contentious and targeted by crazy militants magazine on France, who um, our sometime listener and correspondent, Robert Wilson, uh, writes for. So put them together, you get Charlie Gresty. Very good. And our final Julio for now, Robert Drummond. Yeah, it was strange that you get a golf shop that signs up to the final word, but Drummond, Drummond Golf, you see them everywhere, and I'm just assuming that Robert Drummond is the... uh, 
the man behind the swing, as it were, you know, watch your swing. Uh, is, is that what, what's Jim Maxwell's line about? Trust your swing. Trust your swing. Trust your swing. That's, that's the Robert Drummond <laughs> line. And, and I like to think about the sort of mafiosi shenanigans that would go on behind the scenes to become a kingpin of golf, you know, because, because it would be a, be a vicious and brutal industry. And when you're, when you're the El Capo of the golf world, you know how to swing a club. I feel like I'm ready to fire up here, Jeff. I've been I've been playing the role of Craig Willis over the last five minutes at the end of a grand final. With you number have. two, Chris Mew, and now now it's time <laughs> for me to actually do something. Don't think, do almost, almost because all of those uh, Julio pledges were our two dollars or two pound Julio pledges. There were a few who came in with five dollars or pounds as well, and I think they were Julios. But I wanted to I wanted to decide unilaterally that. It could also be a nerd pledge. Okay. So I thought if 500 were a nerd pledge for Brent Simmons, Mike Brown, Matt Freed, Adrian Muller, Elliot, Olivier, and Peter Arnold not, what would 500 mean? And it's, it's an interesting number because we're obsessed with 500 in cricket, partly as a batting average, because 50, 50 being the batting average that separates the greats from the rest, supposedly. Also, 500 wickets. You would remember the craze when Courtney Walsh was closing on 500 wickets, the first bowler to get near it, when he was seemingly ancient and creaking and, and, and struggling up to the crease and bowling about 30k slower than at his peak and still being clever with the ball and got to 519 in the end, yep. I'm pretty sure it was, against South Africa in the West Indies. And we were still knocking over the likes of Jacques Callas and so on in his last series. Um, and that was a big moment. Uh, the, the 50 as a test average is an interesting one because, you know, anyone who averages under 50... People tend to look at them and say, oh, yeah, they're not that good. There are only 42 players in test history who averaged over 50, you know, who played more than the requisite 20 innings. So (laughs) nobody averages 50. It's not a thing that's done. And it's interesting watching the careers of these players who've dipped in and out of it and who've dropped below it, like David Warner and Joe Root and Chiteshwa Pajara, who are fine, fine test batsmen, but who weren't able, you know, haven't been able to keep that up. And it's it's a pretty hard graft late in your career to get back up above 50 once you've dropped out. But the other 500, which would be interesting to you, is quite a few teams declare around a, a round number. So there are some 500 declarations, but there are only five scores in test history where a team's been bowled out for exactly 500. Okay. So across 144 years. And I know you like things happening in quick succession. I do. Two of those happened within three months of one another in 1984. <laughs> so 140 years with five 500s, two of them happened within three months on opposite sides of the world, the West Indies in Manchester and then India in Faisalabad. The Windies game is when Gordon Greenwich made a double mm. and Jeff Dujon, the inventor of the mustard, made 100. And in the India game, it was Ravi Shastri, the boss, the man who just coached India to their win in Australia, who made a big ton in that game. So a couple of 500s for you. And that's a 500 Julio slash nerd combo pledge for the aforementioned Brent, Mike, Matt, Adrian, Elliot and Peter. Thank you for your contributions. Thank you, one and all. And in the case of Elliot Olivier, some of the early episodes of The Final Word were recorded in his living room in London all those years ago. So when I was recording remotely back to you. So a nice link back to... Uh, what we're doing here today. G'day, Elliot. Hopefully see you before I leave the country if I'm able to get into New South Wales. Time will tell. Right, so, yeah. Jeff, all the Julios are dealt with, which means it's now time for a different version of, but nonetheless, some time for... Nerd Pledge! 
Oh, that nearly killed me. I'm having my, my customary like health collapse at the end of a large series. <laughs> Here's what I forgot to mention about Ryan Thomas, our Julio pledger. I knew I had something and I, I just blathered about whales for a while. But Ryan Thomas, newly subscribed as a Julio, solved a clue on his first step up to the plate. Adam, this was the right. 606 that we've been going back and forth with ah. about, uh, from David WFG, who was saying it was something to do with looking on my cricket. And it was Ryan Thomas who signed up, sent a message straight away and said, is it the best bowling figures of Gideon Haig in Melbourne local cricket? And indeed, it is. Dane Hanstead, a perennial pledge solver, got this as well. They're, uh, they're both correct. So I want to know how they got to this. I mean, this is the... I mean, I, I've seen Gideon play before and I've certainly read Vincibles all those years ago and I know a fair bit about the Arrows. I suspect anyone that knows anything about Gideon knows about the Arrows. But knowing that his bowling, his best bowling is six for six, that's an extra level, isn't it? I mean, how were we meant to work this out? Was there a clue? Apart from my cricket? There was a clue that it was somebody who was uh, related to what we do in some ways and who had recently become a competitor, oh, and that's because Gideon that's Hague right. recently started a podcast. That's right. Sorry, I remember now. Yes, the, the recently became mm. a competitor, which threw us, and we, we were looking through and trying to work out who else had cricket podcasts, but that makes sense. Okay, I like it. And that's all been confirmed by David? Mm. Uh, well, yes, I think David has confirmed that actually, but I wish to give credit to Ryan and Dane who got it before the confirmation because we were busy looking at actual cricketers and should instead have been looking elsewhere. Oh, By yes, actual, I, can, I mean professional. Yeah, I can see the note here from David actually. He notes that uh, he's a legend of the game from an unorthodox background, being a cricket writer rather than an elite level player, but still very much an amateur player. He also recently started the podcast with Peter Lawler with the reference to being somewhat of a competitor. Very good, David. That's the first time we've had a number on Nerd Pledge. I'm pretty sure, apart from the person that went back and picked up one of my five wicket holes from when I was a kid off my cricket, this is the first time we've had a, uh, a my cricket club grade park reference so mm. well played david if anyone would like to do my one for 49 off two overs um you jump in <laughs> you're more than welcome i will know that number when it comes around next up our revisit for shannon blackmore we said for the 664 we went to india making 664 against england in a in an innings where nobody made three figures which was of interest we talked about davo's six for 64 uh, in 1958 at melbourne i mentioned sam robson as well but none of those were correct could you clarify who davo is for uh, for those who for don't those who didn't listen two weeks ago it was alan davison's uh, six for 64 in the first mm -hmm. innings of the melbourne ashes test match of 1958 so davison six in the first and ian mech of six in the second but <laughs> shannon replied and said i just feel that oh. I, just, I feel that almost any listener in Australia would know someone called Davo. They'd be like, oh, shit, Davo took six for 64. Good <laughs> No, it was the Davo with a bowling average of 20, not the Davo okay. who played shield cricket for Victoria and South Australia who, and, of course, Canada, latterly, who had a shield bowling average of about 50. Anyway, Shannon Blackmore told us that we should check their previous pledge of 145 which was the other favourite as a teenager. Not worn MCG, but you're in that era. I was a bit young to pack off to go to Melbourne by myself at the time. So on that basis, mm. I simply went back to 145, Dean Jones, Gabba, 1990. That all kind of worked, but it didn't quite get me to 664 anywhere there. Like I couldn't see a sequence where there was... 664 struck in a row by Jones or there was a 6.64 relevant to the game at all. So I 
doubt it's that, and I'm sure it's something else. But I feel like we're falling a bit short here, Jeff. Yeah, I, I don't have the answer for this. I, I, I was looking for, you know, was it a game where the run rate was 6.64? or um, the, And I was trying to think of that thing that you mentioned where someone hit 6-6-4 six, six and four in, in consecutive balls. So I don't have the answer to this, but I have an answer for this, <laughs> which is what it probably is not. But this is my, this is my last Sally because otherwise I'm coming up empty. Just after, if we're talking about that era, just after the 96 World Cup, when Sri Lanka, are, they're feeling good, they're feeling their oats or whatever that phrase is, which I don't really know what it means. Is it like a horse that's eaten oats and it's happy? I'm not sure. The first international tournament takes place in Singapore. It's never hosted one before. I think it's at the Raffles ground. And it's called the Singer Cup. And I don't know if it was sponsored by the sewing machine company, but I hope it was. <laughs> and it's a tri-series featuring Sri Lanka, India and Pakistan. And so feeling good after the World Cup win, Jaya Surya and Kalavitarana go off on an opening spree. You know, Kalu classically is about 25 off 10 balls when he gets out. Jaya Surya makes 134 off 65 balls. <laughs> Pretty good going, uh, 1996. Uh, Sri Lanka make 349. Who They make 349 and then Pakistan nearly chase it because Inzamam and Ijaz Ahmed go nuts and, and they get them to 315. And why is that relevant to 664? Because if you add the match aggregate, it's the only one-day international in history where 664 runs were made on the day at the Singer Cup in Singapore. So if that's not your answer, Shannon, it should be. Yeah, that's if, uh, all I have to say about that. Yeah, I, I, well, given there's a reference to Warren and the MCG in the era, it's almost certainly not that, but hey, it's a good answer anyway. So, Shannon, uh, please tell us what 664 means in the DMs during the week. Next up, George Norman. We've had about three goes around on this. It's a, it's not Betty Wilson for 102. It's not Elise Perry for 102. It's a recently retired international player, Jeff, and it's a straight 102. There's no other tricks to it. It's simply that. Yeah, George said it's a score and it's a women's cricket score yeah, as we work through various things in recent weeks. But lately, George said it was a recently retired international player of whom the only one to qualify under that criteria is Charlotte Edwards, the recent England skipper, who got 102 twice in ODI cricket, both both against South Africa, Taunton in 1997 and then East London in South Africa in 2004. It's an interesting pair of games because the first time South Africa, not a strong team in the 90s, they unexpectedly chase England's 253, which was a very big score in women's ODIs at the time and they chased it eight down and had a disciplined bowling performance as well. And then the second time around, South Africa bowled 41 extras on the day, including 30 wides. So that time England make 280 instead of 240, 250-odd and South Africa get nowhere near it. So that's the tale of Charlotte Edwards' two 102s. And aside from that, I don't have anything else, George. So if it's not that, uh, let us know what it is. No, I like it. That seems to tally for mine. Uh, Jeremy Burke's 600. We had quite the frolic on this on Storytime when sitting on the balcony here a couple of weeks ago. The clue was that yep. it's a leg spinner. If you want to hear more about that clue, you'll have to listen to the episode because there's far too much detail there. But, Jeff, you got close. It was like, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, that clue? It took us on a tour of, I had to work out who seven different leg spinners were. I got six of them. The problem is I still can't work out who the last one is. There's some story here that I don't know where, where Jeremy says, an Australian leg spinner who is famous for one ball only delivered when on tour, and I 
don't know that story and I can't find it. So it means I, I don't have the piece that I need to solve the rest of it. But the point is to add up the test wickets of all of those players. But considering I don't know who the last player is, I can't do it. Um, the number was 600. A couple of suggestions from our listeners. Tim Minchin, not that Tim Minchin, was suggesting that Anil Kumble being the leg spinner who got to 600 wickets might have had something to do with it, although the rest were all Australian leg spinners. Dane Hanstead came back to an Australian leg spinner we've heard about on the show before. Frank Ward! Frank Ward, the, the knife in the back of Clary Grimmett, whose test batting average was 6 Zero, zero, six on the dot. But how that gets from Jeremy's clues to six, zero, zero, I do not know. And so I think we are, we're raising the white flag. We are France yeah. in the April of 1940 on this clue. And if someone can solve it for us or if Jeremy wants to uh, finish it off for us, please do because we're at the end of our rope. Yeah, so other Australian leg spinners who had one ball they were really known for on tour. I mean, I was thinking like Tim Zura with his leg breaks on the 93 tour, but it's not one ball, it's, it's one game against Essex. No. You know, it's, it's not yep. sort of one of the mystery spinners, Jack Iverson or, or, or Johnny Gleeson either, because, I mean, you wouldn't call them leg spinners. And in the case of Iverson, he didn't play overseas. No. He's only played those five test matches in, in Australia. And it's not Shane Warne, which we've established with Jeremy. It's not the Gatting ball, um, which is, you know, one ball that a spinner's famous for. But uh, yeah, as to, as to who else it is. We'll find out. Elliot Diamond, 195. We sent this back over to the crowd. Now, the original clue was that it's a true great of Australian domestic cricket, but not necessarily referring to their primary skill late in their career. So we had Ilya Andrews suggesting Steve Waugh's 195 ODI wickets, which was a very, very good shout. But Elliot went on to add that he's mentioned this player on Twitter a couple of times over the years, and he holds a soft spot in Elliot's heart. He remembers a performance in about 2014 where he was in absolutely ripping Nick, often an underrated player, I reckon. And the additional clue was that he's played all three formats for Australia. So initially I was down a rabbit warren around Nick Maddinson, who's played all three formats. I think he's played a one-day international, but I thought Maddo because he'd made 195 in a day for Victoria, opening the batting a couple of years ago. But that was totally wrong because, you know, that's his primary skill. Cameron White, however... Ding, 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 ding. He picked up 195 mm. first-class wickets at an average of 41. He's right. He's a true great of state cricket. I'm still trying to find the video of his first wicket from Robolinda. So I was pretty invested in the Cameron White story early on because he played for Danny Nong, a year older than me. I saw him play a number mm. of times when we were younger. When he was principally a leg spinner, he took a hat-trick for Danny Nong at one point. I think he took six for four or something when he was about you know, 16 years old and, you know, a couple of months later he was playing for Victoria as a 17-year-old against New South Wales in a Shield game. And his first wicket was that of Michael Bevan with a gorgeous little wrong and caught the outside edge and was taken at slip. He was batting like nine or even possibly ten in that game. So he was very much Victoria's spinner, well, second spinner. John Davison, who we've already mentioned uh, in the show today, was the, the main spinner in that season, but the season of uh, 2000, 2001. But he took six for 66. It was his best first-class figures. That was against West Australia in, in 2003. I remember that well. It was my first week of university, my O-week, and um, it was during the, the World Cup, actually, and I went down to the G to watch that Shield game, as I did 
did all Shield games at the time and watched Cameron White take six for 66 on the first day. It was all pretty exciting. But in the end, I suppose his leg spin was exposed in, in 2008 as not being quite of that standard when he was picked for the test team, took five wickets in India at an average of 68 and barely bowled after that really at all for Victoria. He was pinched. He'd bring himself on very rarely. So his career did take a shift about five or six years in because before that he was as much a spinner as he was a batsman but he did still take 195 first class wickets and that is almost certainly the answer for Elliot Diamond Jeff. <laughs> You've seen your O face now let's see your O week. Uh, yeah thank you Elliot. <laughs> that is the number I am confident Cam again, not Cameron White again, but this is the name of our next nerd pledger. Cam again, the $1.73 that we were looking at. Adam was looking at Septimus Kinnear, one of Adam's dusty old bastards who he digs up from cricket history, who, you know, players who, who didn't play a lot and are uh, lesser known way back in time. We, uh, we learned a bit more about Septimus Kinnear during the week because Septimus was not the answer. That was the cap number of Septimus Kinnear. Cam replied to say that it's a team score in the first international match I ever attended. But before we get to that, Patrick Rogers, who loves to dig up some cricket history, sent us some more Septimus Kinnear information, including confirming my guess that he was the seventh child, <laughs> Septimus being seventh. That was true. Who says Latin is a dead language, says Pat. He was the seventh of 13. Blimey. 13! Can you imagine? You've got one. Imagine, like, imagine just turning yourselves into a constant baby conveyor belt for, like, 20 years to crank out 13 kids. Yeah. Jesus I'd rather Christ. not. <laughs> um, it, it should be like just, oh, I mean, like all the socks in a row on, on the line, just be baby after baby, just pumping food into them and hosing out the muck. <laughs> Pat goes on to say, his father was a commercial traveller for the Pickwick Brewery. When Septimus played his one test, he opened with Jack Hobbs, was dropped for his poor fielding at the age of 40. Uh, who replaced him at the top of the order? Final word, bingo favourite, Wilfred Rhodes. <laughs> uh, Septimus continues the tales of the strange deaths of cricketers, following on from our tales of Clem Hill falling off a tram and Stan McCabe falling off a cliff while disposing of a dead possum. Uh, Septimus died while cycling on his way home from playing golf in 1928. At 57, he was the youngest of the 1911 County Championship Warwickshire team to die. A remarkably long-lived bunch of men, according to David Frith. Thank you, Patrick. So that was the 173. You've been doing some more work on this, Adam. Where'd you get to? Well, there, there were two noteworthy 173s in the late 90s that Australia kind of chased down. Uh, well, the obvious one is Michael Bevan, Made in Heaven, uh, New Year's Day 1996, so 25 years ago, earlier this month, uh, last ball. Roger Harper, we all know how that ends, so it's almost certainly yep. that. I'd say that would be the first game that Cam attended, and what a first game it was to have attended. Mm. Of course, Michael Bevan wasn't man of the match. It was Paul Rifle for three for and 30-odd, <laughs> not not Michael Bevan, one of the, the quirks. Of you know what? Night. As it should be, bowlers don't get it often <laughs> enough. <laughs> but the other one was in 1999 at Georgetown where Subaral gave the match a tie, the match referee, because the crowd stormed the field and he couldn't establish. They needed three off the last ball to tie, I think it was, and they couldn't establish that they wouldn't have 
crossed for three, if not for the crowd. So the benefit went to the batting team and in turn, Steve Waugh's side registered a tie and all hell broke loose a second time. So two one seven threes from the late 90s. But I doubt that Cam's first uh, experience of watching cricket was in the Caribbean. So let's go with the SCG, New Year's Day 1996. <laughs> In, in Georgetown, Guyana. Yeah, probably, yes, probably unlikely not. at that stage, I, I would have thought. Our, our next one was uh, Adam Jones's $6.30. Um, I was looking at these, the figures of Hugh Trumbull because the hint was it was an old spinner. Adam sent us back some correspondence. Uh, Adam, why don't you be Adam? Yes, I will be Adam. He said, uh, my old spinner wasn't as old as yours. In fact, he's very much still with us and involved in the game. Born in Mumbai. He was in upper sixth, though, year 13 at school uh, when Adam started senior school. He played test cricket, but it isn't a test cricket number. Uh, Adam's thinking of a good new category, though. Australian performances in losing Ashes matches. I just wish there were more examples. Jeff, I was on the way to getting this right before I pulled out, but you've nailed it. Yes, Min Patel is where this uh, ends up with, uh, who was born in Mumbai and played for England. He was one of that run of England players in the early 90s and uh, the mid-90s and early 2000s where there were quite a few Asian players who got very cursory goes in the test team around that time. The left-arm spinner who played a couple of test matches when Phil Tufnell was out of the team but um, it didn't get much of a chance. On debut, he bowled 10 overs in the match because they were playing on a seamer. Uh, and then his only wicket came in his second test at Trent Bridge. This is quite interesting. He got Sanjay Mandraka out for 53. Oh, good. So the one test, the one test wicket that Min Patel got was Mandraka. And during that innings, Sanjay Mandraka hit his only six in test cricket off Min Patel. Less good. So each of them provided the other opportunity, the opportunity for the other to achieve uh, a, a solitary achievement in Test cricket. They are twinned forever. And, and much like our favourite on the final word, Eric Titch Freeman from much earlier in the 1900s, Min Patel played mostly for Kent over 200 times and his first class wicket tally at the end of his career was 630, which was Adam's number, 630. Delightful, delightful. Good work, Jeff. Well played, Adam Jones as well. The correspondence we received from Adam also included uh, a note about our Marcus Joining us interview, we also received a, a touching DM from Matt McGann, Ethan Morgan, Dane Hanstead were also in the, the patron DMs and many, many people on Twitter. I won't name you all, but friends one and all who listen to our chat with Marcus Stoinis, which has been amazingly well received over the last, I suppose, 24, 36 hours, Jeff. So if you haven't gone back in the feed and, and listened to that, I'd encourage you to do so because it's perhaps the... Well, it's certainly the, the least cricket-oriented interview we've ever done on The Final Word, and, and I suppose it's going to be one that we remember for a very long time. Yeah, I agree. It's been pretty pretty overwhelming getting the you know some really, really heartfelt, emotional responses to that. So thank you to everyone who has let us know. Our next revisit, Andrew Beach, uh, who went to Euros, sent us one euro and 60 euro cents. Um, and it's not because Andrew lives in the EU, it's because Andrew chose that as a particular hint and sent these other hints saying, one, it involved a presidential fiasco, two, it involved a dual national cricketer, three, it occurred at or near one of the seats of a consociational government which I had to look up, and for the currency used is deliberate. So the 160, what I 
figured out is that a consociational government is a form of government in which a range of different groups, be they ethnic, religious or otherwise, are represented equally and proportionally and have to collaborate to achieve governmental outcomes. And one such government is in Northern Ireland. So that's where I got to and then you took it from there. Yeah, I didn't get too far. So the first test match that Ireland played, of course, United Ireland, they don't play as Northern Ireland and the Republic of, they, they play as one team and they set Pakistan 160 in the fourth innings of their maiden test match at Malahide in 2018. Of course, Pakistan got there for the loss of five wickets, but it was a close run thing there for a while there. I think they lost their fifth wicket with a score on about 60-odd and they didn't quite manage to finish the job, but Tim Murder had a fine afternoon there with the ball. So that was the best link I've got so far. But yeah, I think the fact that we know that it's probably related to Ireland. The presidential fiasco, the president of Ireland, Higgins, he played cricket, I reckon. I reckon he's one of these Irishmen who who has a history mm-hmm. with the game. So, um, But I'm not sure if he's been involved in, in a fiasco necessarily. A dual national cricketer, mm. well, Uptown Boyd Rankin played in that first test match at mm. uh, Malahide, as did Ed Joyce, for that matter. So it could relate to either of those two. You know, the consociational government link, uh, you know, I think, Jeff, you've already dealt with that. And the currency being in euros, Ireland, yeah, it sort of is all pointing towards one thing. I just wouldn't have a clue. And I think, Jeff, on the basis that we've been kept at bay with that clue, and it's a very, very good clue, Andrew, I think you are indeed our CBUS Super Performer of the Week, Jeffrey. Oh, fair enough. Why not throw that to Andrew? Don't give us clues we can't solve. You're just going to encourage that. There's no, <laughs> no more of that. Um, CBUS uh, would like us to let you know that if you're looking to increase your average in retirement, you can check out CBUS today, cbussuper.com.au. Uh, you can add slash the final word to that and they'll take it to, to our landing page or, or you can give them a call um, to find them on the internet and they will uh, be able to advise you on financial and retirement issues. Past performance, not a reliable indicator of future performance. You can get the product disclosure statement from the website. All right, Jeff, that sounds good to me. So in short, if you know what Andrew Beach means uh, when he's talking about 160 in euros, probably talking about Northern Ireland, uh, probably talking about a dual cricketer, come at us in our DMs or on Twitter and we can work it out ahead of next that's week. A, that's a very risky thing to say, come at us in our DMs. Um, <laughs> just, just that, that's, that is not figurative in any way. Um, keep, let's keep the DMs a safe place for all of us. Thank you. I have, I've been uh, came at quite heavily in the DMs over the last few days since the end of the uh, test match in Brisbane Good in, in a way that I've never experienced before. Oh, overwhelmingly very, very <laughs> kind commentary on what we were doing, Jeff. Uh, on the final day up on the deck there talking about India's famous victory but it's nice it's nice no complaints right 679 is our next revisit Uh, Michael Edelstein okay Uh, we said Patrick Cummins on debut at Johannesburg in 2011 Michael had other ideas he said it's a British passport resting in my desk but matched with evidence of many long periods spent in Australia over many years but as someone who can also be seen at a Swans or Waratahs game as well as Arsenal. My sporting pedigree is varied. Okay, so he's an Englishman who spent a lot of time in Australia. And besides that, Mm -hmm. at this stage, all I can do is draw you back to the UK for this number. Now, Jeff, the UK, not England. That's what I took from this, and I think you did as well. That is exactly what I took from this. And so this this is my final bid 
on Michael Edelstein because if, if Pat Cummins wasn't going to do it, there is uh, a set of bowling figures again from a test match that were also six for 79. But this, this was Pat Pocock, who was an off spinner, mm. who was a Welsh cricketer who played for England. And so when I think UK, I mean, not, not hugely united at the moment, but Welsh playing for England, that's not going back to England. That's specifically a UK palette from which we're drawing the colours today. And remarkably an off spinner who played tests sporadically, but from 1968 through until 1985, which... I rather love, I mean, you know, it's 17, 18 years of playing test matches here and there. And Pat Pocock's best day came in that first year of test cricket, not his first match, but maybe third or fourth match, when he took down the Australians in the second dig at Old Trafford with six for 79. So then that matches up with, with Michael's UK plus an interest in Australia. Yep. It didn't end up winning the match for England because Australia were already well ahead on the first innings and, and England ended up having to chase 400, but it would have been much worse if they hadn't bowled out Australia pretty cheaply in the second innings. Didn't go so well after that. Ended his career with a test strike rate of just above 99. Um, <laughs> 99 balls bowled per wicket taken, which is hard graft, but had a, a reputation for Surrey of taking wickets much more quickly. Two different hat-tricks playing for Surrey. Uh, one of which came in what is a record-breaking sequence in a whole range of ways. An absolutely bonkers game. And I know you love a first-class game that ends in a draw when the scores are very close or when the scores are tied. Mm. Uh, so in, in this game, this is Sussex, I think, needing 18 from the last three overs. And they've either lost one wicket or they're yet to lose a wicket. I can't remember. I, th- I think they'd lost one. Okay. And, you know, Gordon Greenwich was smashing everybody around, including Pocock. But Pocock gets brought back on at this stage and takes three wickets for two runs in an over. You know, knocks over Greenwich, a couple of others, and it seems like... It's it's just a late flurry. Okay, he's got some wickets. Good on him. Robin Jackman, actually, who, who we mentioned, who, who died a couple of weeks ago, mm. who we mentioned on the show, bowled the next over and got tonked, hit for a six. You know, a few more runs go down. And so with the last over of the game, Sussex need five runs from six balls when Pocock comes on to bowl the last over, at which point he takes three wickets with the first three balls of that over, (laughs) having taken one with the last ball of his previous over. That's four wickets in four balls at that point. Double hat-trick. Yeah, double hat-trick. Then he concedes a single. Then he bowls the next guy to make it a streak of seven wickets in 11 deliveries. Slimy. And at this point, there's two wickets left and one ball to go. So Sussex can't get bowled out unless it's, a, you know, stumped off a wide or something like that. But they do try to get the runs. They, they, they still need three or four runs. So they hustle back, trying to come back for a second. And Pocock runs out the number nine from the final ball, meaning it's a draw at nine wickets down and three runs short of victory. Um, and in that period, he's taken seven wickets in 11 deliveries for the cost of, I think, two runs. And been involved in a run out. Talk about, I mean, from a Sussex perspective, yeah. that's, a, that's, that's right up there with the all-time chokes. Yeah, 18 from three overs. I mean, you know, it, it, it was several decades ago when 18 from three overs was probably considered a very tall order. But That's true. Um, nonetheless, it's a, it's a fairly extraordinary sequence of first-class cricket, and that is a, a passage of play that Pat Pocock is remembered for. So six for 79. That's my bid, Michael. Uh, let us know. Thank you, Michael Edelstein. Next up, we've got party liaison. Two, one, three. We've gone through the, his, the, the theatrics of two, one, three with, with Tim Van to pump before, so yep. we, won't, we won't repeat the music, but we'll simply say that last time we were talking about Dave Norse, and I can't quite remember mm. why that was the case. You had a story to tell 
around 2.13. But Tim has advised us to go in a different direction. Well, Dave Norse was a early 1900s cricket captain of South Africa and and part of the Norse South African family tradition, which Tim enjoyed hearing about, but told us that the 2.13 that he was thinking of did have a specific link or two, he says, to our favourite defenestrator, which, of course, is Clem Hill, who tried to throw a selector out a window, and fair enough too. Also, says Tim, guess how many runs your latest guest, this email came through a while ago, your latest guest, David Milan, scored in the six T20s versus Pakistan and Australia this English summer. You don't need to guess. Truly the magic number. David <laughs> Milan scored 213 runs in those six matches. Well observed by Tim. 213, the final words, magic number, lives on and on. In terms of how it links to Clem Hill, Tim, I've run the, I've run the stats. I've read the books. I'm... I can't confidently say what this is, but we've had a few goes at it. So this is my, my final bid here. Is there, a, there are two things I've noticed. One is the more straightforward one, that Clem Hill made 17,213 first-class runs. Very good. So there is a 213 in there. And the second one, a link to Clem Hill. If you want some tenuous final word story time bullshit, this is going to be right <laughs> up there with some of the best, I think. Clem Hill came from Adelaide played in Adelaide, had a big moustache. Clem Hill at one point held the world record for test runs and not surprising because he made several thousand test runs having played, what, 59 matches, I think, from memory when, you know, people didn't play a lot of test cricket and he played for a long time. And he claimed the world record for test runs in 1903 by going to... Oh, this is from memory... Um, I think it was 1,931 runs mm -hmm. was the record at the time held by... Who was it held by, Adam? Um, That's a good question. Oh, God, I think we did this, Charlie, didn't we? We, we, we went was, through and worked out... It was out. an English... Hmm. I, I'm going to take it, that it on notice. It was Charlie McCartney. No, no, that's not quite going to line up. But, um... So, 1903, the leading... We've done this, too. That's annoying. No, but, but it's a name like that. Oh, God, it's just... Oh, it's just slipped my... Okay. Uh, Archie McLaren. That's why I was thinking Charlie ah, McCartney, because right, it was okay. Mc yes. something. Archie McLaren, yes. the English um, skipper at the time. Clem Hill took the runs tally off him and made in excess of 3,000 test runs yep. from memory. Anyway, took that record in 1903. Now, just over a century later, about 102 years, 101 and a half years later, Brian Lara took the world record for test runs from Alan Border. And Brian Lara did this at the Adelaide Oval, where Clem Hill played all of his shield cricket for South Australia. And when Brian Lara levelled Alan Border for test runs, it was during Lara's big score at the Oval in, what was it, 05? 05, yeah. And he drew level with Border for test runs on 11,000 or whatever it was, when Lara's score for the innings reached 213. His 213th run was the record-equalling run to share it with Alan Border. On Clem Hill's home ground at the Adelaide Oval, a previous holder of the world record. Very good. That, that's my bit. Well, I think if you're looking at tenuous, final word nonsense, Tim, party liaison Vanderpump, enjoys that. So I'm not going to rule it out. Um, and we've had a few pops at this, Tim, so let us know. Are we anywhere near it? Has Jeff completely missed the mark? We want to know. We want to find out. Uh, next up, Michelle Garland, 362. Now, 
We mentioned Headingley, mm. and Michelle said, well, no, not Headingley, but it's a game that Ben Stokes was involved in. There's only other one other game that I can identify where 3-6-2 was a team score where Ben Stokes has played for England, and that was in the Manchester Test match of 2017 where Stokes played and made 58 and 23. Uh, England won pretty easily, but not a overly noteworthy test match. It was the one where actually Toby Rowley-Jones, mm. final word favourite, ran a mark and established himself and looked like he was on, on the way to getting an Ashes tour later that year. Unfortunately, he got injured before that was the case. But yeah, I sort of wonder whether that's it. I, I can't quite work out why uh, Michelle would be drawing us towards a test match that's fairly unremarkable. It lines up with her clue that it's the Manchester test of 2017, but perhaps not the spirit of it, given we know Michelle's been an excellent pledger in the past, and there must be some broader link to Stokes there, and I can't quite find it. I don't think it's a link to Stokes. I think it was just a hint that Stokes was involved in this game, but I can't see what it was about this game that makes it particularly noteworthy other than a few of the sort of short-lived England faves were in there, you know, people who players who people were excited about for a little while in Keaton Jennings and Tom Westley and Toby Rowland-Jones. Tom Westley, every time I hear Tom Westley, I just think Princess Bride, you know, Westley. (laughs) It's a curse that I can never hear it any other way. So, look, that's our guess, as good as it is, Michelle. Um, Let us know if if that's on or, or why it was that you chose that number because I'm not sure if there's any other number it can be. But that's our final bid. Steve Denner. $2.95. We were looking at Jack Ryder, the early great Australian batsman, the first Australian batsman to average over 50 in test cricket, Jack Ryder, who made 295 for the Victorian team in their, what is still the world record first class score of 1,107 back in 1926. So we had an email from Steve saying that uh, he'd enjoyed hearing his number come up on the uh, the Andy Zaltzman return show the the what would you call it was that was your TMS no your um calling the shots interview with Andy yes, Zaltzman wasn't right. it that was put up on the on the story time feed some lovely stories of huge scores which in the mind play better than those matches probably did a spectacle says Steve although I will have you know Steve that Jack Ryder's 295 was said to be a a destructive whirlwind now maybe that means by those standards that it was at three and over rather than 1.2 oh no 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 it was it was in I think I'm right in saying wasn't it 295 in about 250 minutes no this was this was a, a proper sort of he made it inside a day when Victoria were already flying. I was being facetious. Okay, okay. I'm just making sure we're on the same Victoria had about... Victoria had about 600 on the board, I think, when he came in and he was like, right, time to go, everybody, <laughs> and, and absolutely did so. So that would have been a good one to watch. Steve says, uh, here I suppose I should be giving you clues, which is difficult to do without giving it away far too easily. Perhaps best to start by saying that the number relates to English cricket. Well, for me, Adam, English cricket is all about pessimism. You know, when they're winning, they're worried that they're about to start losing. When they're losing, they're sure that that's the way the world is supposed to be in which case if you're about pessimism there's not much better than the false dawn of 2013 at brisbane given we've been talking about brisbane tests a lot Mm -hmm. in the last week or so taking on australia at the gabba uh stuart broad big bad better than his dad took six for not many on the first day uh Haddon and, and Johnson did some swinging down the order, which was fun. But in the end, Australia only got 295 on the first day. I remember Haddon getting run out, last man out, I think, on 92, trying for the 
you know, trying to keep the strike and, and push that score up. And you thought, well, 295 on the Gabba, that's not enough. England are well on top here. And then England got absolutely mashed for 136 in the slide of that season began. But as far as false dawns went, that, that first evening in Brisbane, England feeling pretty good at the Gabba, it doesn't get much more false than that. Yeah, I think that's probably right. A couple of additional bits there. Like, remember they were routinely five for not enough Australia in, in that series. And this was the first instance of that where... The whole summer. All summer. Where on that occasion, I think they were six for not enough and it was Haddon and, and Mitchell Johnson, as you say, who batted the majority of the final session and then kicked on the following day to get into yep. a semi-respectable score. And then the next day with England, I don't know, none for 30-odd at lunch. You're thinking, well, okay, they're, they're doing well here. Stuart Broader picked up those six wickets. He walked into the press conference with a copy of the Courier-Mail under his arm after there was the broadband the previous mm. day and all that garbage. But he obviously loves playing up to that Broadie and good luck to him for it. That was a, a fun way to start the series and what ended up being a nightmare for them. Yeah, and then that was the, the day at the Gabba, which for mine is still the sort of loudest I've experienced a cricket ground uh, at a test match, really. I mean, there would have been days where there'd been one moment where it was very loud, but that middle session where, mm. you know, Johnson gets into it big time, Nathan Lyon takes wickets with consecutive deliveries, and England are pretty much bowled out in one session. That was exhilarating stuff. Mm. It was moody as well. You were there, Jeff, in the press box. It was... I wasn't. I was in yeah. the outer. But it was... It was um, the sort of cloud had set in above the Gabba. It was steamy, sweaty. All the things that um, the Brisbane do well, apart from the sun, it was just... Yeah. It was thick cloud, and it suited Australia's bowlers so well. And that was the beginning of a pretty brutal summer for England, but at least they had the first day with uh, broad six wickets. We didn't even know each other there. Then it was a, a serendipitous story. We were so close to one another and yet didn't know that <laughs> the way that our lives would go, the serendipity starring John Cusack uh, type situation the, the previous that night, we were yeah, in. So I went day one and day two. Day two, I went with one group of friends, day two, a second group. And on the first day, we ended up back at the Pineapple Hotel, which we've been to for beers a number of times. And, As you and do. we spotted Stewie Lowe at the bar, former St Kilda forward from the 90s. Buckets. Biggest hands in football. So, of course, what we did was we were climbing all over Stewie Lowe's back after 20 beers and trying to get him to measure his hands against our hands and taking heaps of photos with Stewie Lowe in his hands. He didn't seem to mind, which in hindsight is quite uh, remarkable that he didn't kick off that having a nice day at the cricket, he was being mm. accosted by sort of 10 blokes who've been on the case <laughs> since 9am. But hey, you know, it was simpler times. <laughs> Dear sir... <laughs> I have to make a protest about these continued jibes about the size of my enormous hands. They really were something too. I mean, actually, I seeing them, actually seeing them up close and putting my hand up against his, they really were special hands. Anyway, I'm going to take it to a slightly different place, Jeff, uh, as I like to do in okay. each and every episode. Let's do this. Yes, Jeff, for Jim Parks Jr. is the one and only. He's a dusty old bastard. He was the 295th English Test cricketer. And I like his story, and I thought it was worth telling. He was having a relatively normal one, as far as English all-rounders are concerned, after debuting for Sussex in 1927. He ticked over. Occasionally, he'd take, you know, 60 or 70 wickets in a season with his slow right-arm medium pace. 
occasionally he might make a thousand runs in a season, but he wasn't sort of a, a dominant all-rounder doing the double, pressing for national selection. And then 1937 comes around. And in 1937, Jim Parks Jr. took 101 wickets and made 3,003 runs with 11 centuries. He's the first and only man in a first-class season to take in excess of 100 wickets and make in excess of 3,000 runs. And because of it... The one and only. He's the one and only. He's the true one he's and only. He's the true one and only. And because of that, he earned himself a test match at Lords uh, towards the end of 1937 against New Zealand. He was on a roll, of course, so they picked him as an opening batsman. He made 22 and 7. Um, he took two for 26, so he did a decent job. He actually debuted alongside Len Hutton, another very famous mm. English cricketer. We were talking about Jack Hobbs's debut earlier in the show, Jeff, but Len Hutton debuted with Jim Parks Jr. and he was, I suppose, anything but middling. <laughs> you look at uh, the middling results of Parks on, on in his one test match, not really getting going with the bat, but of course Hutton gets picked again in the Ashes of 1938, makes the world record score at the Oval in the final test match, but for Jim Parks Jr., that was his one and only test match in the one and only season where he excelled. But the one and only season where 100 wickets and 3,000 runs have been tallied, it'll never happen again due to the, mm. the first-class structure in England. And I note that when World War II hit, that was really the end of his professional career. They had a benefit for him in 1939, which was you know the custom after playing for a club for a number of years. I think 10 years was the threshold then. And they raised just £734. So um, his benefit didn't go too well at mm. Sussex, but... He'll always have that record. He'll always have that test cap, number 295. Wow. 1937 just, you know, probably wasn't a good year for a lot of people. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, str- it's, it's in the middle. It's like the episode in a series where you know that, like, sh- shit's about to kick off in the next step and so you just feel nervous in advance. You're like, ooh, 1937, yeah. that's a, ooh, things, are, things are about to get hairy. Yeah, not a great year for many people. Not a great year for the Czechoslovakians especially. I think they had a pretty rough run of it. Sud- no. Sudetenland was uh, up yeah. for grabs. At, well, I say up for grabs. Not so much up for grabs as given away around then. But anyway, that's another podcast altogether. Mm. Well, you know, we can we could just Dan Carlin it and just like wander off to a three and a half hour <laughs> European history podcast. We could do, no. we could do, we could do an episode about the Great Appeasement. <laughs> but that's the, that's next on the final I, word. Yeah, <laughs> I've got I, I could I could brush up on it. I've got the background. I could I can tell you a lot about um, the decline in in Japanese merchant shipping from 1941 to 43. That was one of my <laughs> specialist areas uh, in the in the face of the American submarine attack after they broke the codes and the Japanese refused to admit that they could have broken the codes because that would be a loss of face. It's one of the funnier bits of World War II. They're like, no, 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 our codes are uncrackable. Let's just carry on. As usual, every Japanese ship had to report its location to Central Command every 24 hours at midday. They had to send their exact coordinates back to, back to Tokyo, which meant that the Americans were like, thank you. That's very interesting. We know where all your ships are once a day, and now we will sink them all. That, that reminds me of that Frontline episode where Mike Moore has been faxing the run sheet from Frontline through to Channel 9 each day where it's picked up by Glenn Ridge at Absolutely. the other end and takes it and uses it to, <laughs> to beat them every night. Uh, that's a pretty... I think that's the second time that's come up on the show in about three months. Okay. Uh, yeah, as I was saying it, I realised that I said it. That's on, um, that's on one of the... I think that's on Netflix at the moment. I popped a couple of eps on for rates the other mm. week, and it, it holds up. It holds mm. up. So if you're from England and you don't yep. know what Frontline is, it's kind of like Drop the Dead Donkey, but an Australian version of it. Also, Glenridge sounds like it could be something, you know, um, a conflict in the Ardennes during <laughs> the big push you know, against the German Armoured Division, the Battle of Glenridge, you know, <laughs> when, the, when, when, uh, 
<laughs> when the Americans under Patton are pushing forward. Yeah, you look, there are The Battle are, of Glen Close came later. <laughs> <laughs> Both a suburban cul-de-sac and an Academy Award winning actress. <laughs> Uh, Glenn, Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, <laughs> just four dudes sitting around having a drink. So that's 295, all that relates to. That was Steve Denner. Uh, let us know how we've gone or how we've not gone, as it were. Uh, 187 is Simon Old Trafford, friend of the show. We love mm. corresponding with Simon. I said, I think, Shikadawan on Taboo back in 2013. Simon replied that, he enjoyed hearing about that and it's a beautiful connection he says to his previous number because his innings lasted 174 deliveries i.e. Derek Randall's centenary test which Simon Trafford has uh, wow. pledged in the past so it's almost perfect however that was not the intended innings there's a strong connection though to D.W. Randall at a domestic level Jeff I mm. think we have mm. got this one so very briefly because we talk about the centenary test a lot I will Briefly explain that, which is that in 1977, 100 years after the first test match, they play a test in which Australia set England just over 400, what, 450 odd yeah. in, the, in the second innings, sorry, the fourth innings in the chase. And England, for quite a long while, look like they're going to make it because Derek Randall makes this 174 um, and just goes after the bowling, goes after Lily, gets hit in the head, keeps hooking him, all the rest of it. And it's a really thrilling chase and it ends up falling 45 runs short. And so that's why people are excited by the centenary test and also because the margin of victory ends up being the same as the margin in the first test match in 1877, which is 45 runs. So people talk about it for that reason. Um, if we were looking at Simon's number 187 and wanted to link it to the centenary test, not that that's what his clue suggests necessarily, but if you wanted to, it is relevant and interesting. Well, it's not relevant, but it is interesting that in that test, Rod Marsh beat the world record for wicket-keeping dismissals going past Wally Grout. And what was the world record for wicket-keeping dismissals, I hear you ask? 187 wicket-keeping yep. dismissals that Rod Marsh went out. Also, when setting that target of 463, Rod Marsh was key in setting that target because Rod Marsh made 100 after Australia were uh, in a bit of trouble early. His what best were they in trouble for? Oh, all that in the His first test innings made a 130-something, 140 maybe, Australia all that, that England are all out for 95, mm -hmm. famously. Then in the second innings, Rod Marsh was just outstanding. His best innings for Australia. Mm. But when Rod Marsh comes into bat, the score was 5 for 187. Ah. 187. So he went past 187 and he came in at 187. But in terms of what Simon's number actually is, here's my bid. At domestic level, Derek Randall played for Nottingham. And a few months after the centenary test came the 1977 Ashes. And in the third test at Trent Bridge, Jeff Boycott gets recalled to the team after sulking for three years and refusing to play because the wallpaper wasn't the right colour or whatever it was. And Boycott comes in to replace Dennis Amos, who hasn't made any runs. And Boycott's 37 years old at the time and people are, you know, sceptical as to whether he's still got it. And so... They're playing at Trent Bridge at Nottingham's home ground and he runs out the hometown boy Derek Randall on 13 and Boycott is still out there so he has to make amends and he does that by making a century. He makes 107 and then he makes 80 not out in a moderate run chase and cumulatively in the match he makes 187 runs and so that is a connection to Derek Randall at domestic level as Simon said that also relates to another number 187 total in the third test Jeff Boycott. Yep, I'll have that that famous Nottinghamshire player 
test at Trent Bridge, a famous moment of commentary as well. I think we used this in calling the shots, or if we didn't, we were certainly going to. Richie Benno's on the tools for BBC for television uh, during that test match, and he says, oh, what a tragedy, or something like that, when um, Boycott, who... I mean, I can't stress the shithousery from Boycott here. He pushes straight mm. back to the bowler and charges down the track. And Randall, of course, is going back to his own ground at the non-striker's end because the ball's been pushed to the bowler. Thus, he's trying not to get run out. And by the time he looks up, Boycott's there to shake hands with him and he has no choice but to run and he's run out by, yeah, by, by 15 yards. So it was, um, uh, according to uh, Benno, a, a tragedy, which, by the way, is sort of, a, a, I guess, um, a word that Benno would often say you weren't yeah. meant to use when commentating. But I suppose he was more refined yeah. the, the, the longer he uh, was involved in the game as far as his commentary was concerned. Yes, maybe in 1977 he was still still learning the ropes and, and regretted his decision of words later. But yes, that is um, that is interesting. You th- if, if if you were D.W. Randall, you might have considered just staying put. <laughs> like, no, nah, sorry, I'm here. I was here first. Get your own ground. All right, that's the one eight seven. Will Cuxon seven dollars ninety seven. Um, we were yes. looking at sequences. We were looking at so so Will said that this number refers to a freak occurrence and a particular achievement that happened consecutively and I was looking at Jack Fingleton making what was it 400s in consecutive innings and averaging 79.7 in a season in the mid 30s and and that was not it uh, the achievement we're referring to is more recent says Will and I'm I'm deeply frustrated that this is not 795 rather than 797 because it's so nearly Chris Rogers, you would remember in 2015, I was pumping up the fact that Chris Rogers was on the brink of setting a world record, which was the only test batsman to make seven consecutive dismissed scores between 50 and 100. <laughs> and he had six in a row, and I really wanted the seventh. And he got it. And it was at Cardiff. And, yeah. then, and he got it. He got to 95, and he got out. And I was the only person who probably who was happy to, well, aside from England supporters, to see him get out for 95, because I didn't want him to ruin it by making 100. And so I have some glimmer of hope that maybe Will misremembered the 95 as a 97, because seven, seven in a row, and the last one was 95. If this number was 795, it would ally perfectly but it's not it's 797 and so then also went in will's clue he's when he says a freak occurrence he puts freak in inverted commas so that made me think is there an ian harvey link and while i was researching ian harvey i found a different guy called ian harvey who does fundraising by running marathons and once did a fundraising run of seven marathons in seven states in seven days which is called the 777 but not the 797 so i don't know what do you got Well, I'd love it to be Ian Harvey, a big influence on a lot of uh, players when I was a kid due to the way he did things differently, throwing with both hands at the back of the hand, slow ball, smashing the ball a mile, all the rest. Sorry, he's made in first class 100 actually at the MCG in early 96. I was there at the bottom of the southern stand watching Victoria play. In fact, I've been doing a fielding drill on the ground during the lunch break with my cricket team <laughs> and Matthew Elliott made his first double ton and Ian Harvey his first century. Anyway, digression. 797. I ended up in Sri Lanka for this one. Now, I don't think it's right, but I think it's noteworthy all the same. So, Morley takes 7 for 97 against South Africa at Colombo uh, in 2006. Sri Lanka actually won that test by by one wicket. Uh, it's an incredible finish. Murali's the last man out, the ninth man out, and then they, they get over the line. But in terms of sequences, so 
7 for 97, classic test match finish. The next week, the next test, that's where Jay Wardner makes his 374, Kumar Sangakara 287 in a partnership of 624. After they were 2 for 14 early and they go on to make 5 for 756, which is a you know obviously a massive score. Not their highest in, in test cricket. They made in excess of 900 when Jay Surya made his triple. But nevertheless, two noteworthy moments in test cricket in consecutive matches. But statistically, Jeff, I, I don't necessarily think the correlation is strong enough there to warrant Will Cuxon pulling it out. Mm. Um, there's no, yeah, there's nothing really that gives me that belief. <laughs> Morley does take 10 wickets in that test, though, so he goes from taking seven for in one and 10 in the next. I don't know. It's probably not there, but it was worth going back and seeing two eventful test matches in two weeks back in 2006. I enjoyed hearing about them. Um, Will, Unless, by some very small chance, because I believe in you, unless you've got the Chris Rogers number just ever so slightly wrong, we're stumped, we're out of ideas, we give in, we wave the white flag. (laughs) France 1940, once again. (laughs) Let us know what (laughs) your solution is, because we got nothing else at this point. Shall we have a little breather and then run through the rest of what we've got to get through? Sounds good to me. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It is January. Uh, Christmas came and went. Normally our charity friends at the Lord's Taverners would have been doing a lot of fundraising events all around the UK. They would have been bringing in a, a huge chunk of their annual uh, budget for the good work that they do over that period. They haven't been able to do that. They haven't been able to get people together in the same space, obviously, with the pandemic still raging in the UK and uh, so it's it's all the more important for them to try to find other ways to get people on board to help support the work that they do with kids with disadvantage and living with disability. Yeah, so Lord's Tabs have been going for seven decades, 71 years they're, they're into now in 2021 and the work that they do is vital with so many different groups in the community and 2020 made it that much harder to do their important fundraising work. and But it doesn't mean it stops. It doesn't mean that just because we're in the middle of a global pandemic, the work they do is any less important. It's just that the fundraising mission becomes all the more important. So uh, what we've been doing on The Final Word over a number of months now is raising awareness to the work they do and explaining that the, the equation is pretty simple when you drill down a bit. The cost of one coffee per month ensures that a child in disadvantage or with disability can access and attend a program for an entire year. So it's not huge sums of money to make a huge difference for an individual out there who really can do with the the fine work the Lord's Taverners have been doing over such a long period of time. Yeah, so three quid a month or or five bucks a month, roughly, depending which country you're in, and uh, that can help the the Taverners cricket programs that help their participants with um, isolation and loneliness by providing opportunities for them to meet friends, get socially engaged, develop their personal skills, get more confidence, and and just try to help prepare these kids who are, are starting from a setback position to be able to get a decent boost to get ahead in life. It's really good work. We're very proud to be associated with them. You can visit lordstaverners.org to find out all the information about their programs and how you can help and a little bit can go a long way. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. 
This is the final word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We have some correct answers to come back to. So, as it would suggest, we like to get told when we've got things right. We like to put a full stop on the story when it's been going for a while. <laughs> um, take, for example, Christopher Byrne. You like validation. Well, Christopher Byrne, we had to go back and forth with a few times to work out that his 2 2 1 was mm. about the scoreboard at the SCG World Cup 1992. Chris replied saying, We were spot on. It was a travesty. One he cheered in the middle of the night at the time, and not that it mattered at the end, but somebody much more learned than I could certainly do an interesting program on the history of ODI adjustments for weather delays. So that's when South Africa needed, uh, they needed like, I can't remember anymore, was it 22 off 13 balls, which became 22 off one ball. And yep. anyway, England make the World Cup final on account of that quirk. That's where we get net run rate from, which provides another quirk in 1999 during the World Cup semi-final. So it seemed to follow cricket for a while there, but we've ironed out those kinks now, I reckon. So thank you, Christopher Mm. Byrne. (laughs) If anyone is going to make a a documentary program on the history of ODI adjustments for weather delays, I'm looking at him right now. (laughs) Your next major investment, the Daniel Norcross collab, (laughs) could definitely be on something as niche as that. I I could see it. I could hear it already. Yes, uh, that, that, that's not an unreasonable conclusion. Uh, Jeff, next up is Danny McGee. If it isn't my old friend Danny McGee with a leg for an arm and an arm for a knee, 1917 <laughs> was his number. We said Athers and McGrath and we were spot on. Yes, uh, it was Michael Atherton getting out 19 times in 17 test matches to uh, Glenn McGrath, which was one of, the, one of the all-time great clues, really, to position the numbers in that way. And I think I'd said at the time that if it was not that, I would eat somebody else's hat because I don't own any hats. Danny McGee said, ding, 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 the hats of Australia are safe for now. Um, hats of Australia which I particularly have made like because it made their choice, exactly. We're, we're, we'll have the same frontline references and the same snappy Tom bits. What, what was it that we... A, a, a glimpse into the life the way it is when Adam and I were staying together in Brisbane during the test, I started for some unknown reason singing the theme song to the Pick a part um, <laughs> car parts service that advertised on TV in the nineties, and Adam immediately started singing along to something that I can I could safely tip he would not have heard in about twenty five years. But you know, pick a part, pick a part, pick a part, pick a part. Don't leave um, that and car. And then he immediately just rattled off. <laughs> yeah, come to pick a part. Where everything's cheap. cheap. But he rattled off the whole thing. <laughs> you know, second hand parts for second hand cars from a door, from to, a door a to a wheel to a, to a bumper bar. Bumper bar. Yeah, I mean the pause. I think the pause was really important because that was, you know, they left space for that internal right from a door to a wheel to a bumper bar. That's style points. That's not just your average car part rap. That's like, you know, there's some definite delivery stuff there. That's riding the beat. Um, so, so good on whoever wrote that. It was a cut above the average. So. Look, uh, Hats of Australia have made their choice. They're safe for now. It was indeed Michael Atherton's record. And Danny says, bless poor Michael. Accounts for three of the four worst bunnies in history. And he sent us the stats to back it up, which I'm sorry, Michael, but here it is. Um, Yeah, 17 matches against Glenn McGrath and 19 dismissals. The second worst bunny is Alec Bedser getting Arthur Morris a bunch of times, Mm. um, 21 times in 18 matches, which is... Other way around, helpfully. Um, Helpfully it was 18 in 21. If it was 21 and 18, he'd be even worse again. Yeah, 
More of a problem. Okay, 18 in 21. So, yes, 19 times in 17 games for Atherton, 18 in 21 for Arthur Morris. And then Atherton twice more against Kirtley Ambrose. He was out 17 times in 26 matches. And against Courtney Walsh, 17 times in 27 matches. So they did play a lot of times against each other, but still, um, it, it would be a... It's deja vu all over again. I think that reflects well upon Atherton, personally. I reckon that if you're getting out to the best fast bowlers in the world... Like, I suppose what I'm saying is is that he took it up to them, of course, and, you know, his, his, his stats mm. reflect that um, batting in very difficult circumstances at a di- very difficult time when leading his team. But at least he was getting out to the best. He wasn't sort of throwing his wicket away against the, mm. the first change or the part-timer. He was usually mm. the most important wicket and targeted accordingly. But anyway, I don't think it's quite as... Yeah, I think... Mm. It, it, it can be viewed two ways. It'd be interesting to know how many were in first spells. You know how many are early in the test yeah. versus how many are in subsequent spells. That's that'd be the real determinant on success as an opening batsman. Because if you're getting out to the best opening fast bowler, but it's in their first spell, then True. you're not playing well. But if you've negotiated a couple of spells, then then you have. So you know, if you want to do the numbers on that, Danny, you want to go back through the scorecards and let let us know what over he got out in uh, in all those times. You can two ninety one. Aj, uh, we said that was Donny. Uh, in the 2011 World Cup final, of course, India were chasing uh, 291. And RJ confirmed that being an India fan and a CSK fan from Chennai roots, he had to pledge in honour of the great man for one of the greatest days ever. He remembers watching it with a very large group of friends and family and all hell breaking loose after that six to win the game, that famous helicopter, Jeff. So I think that's fitting Mm. uh, given that RJ made that pledge the day that MS Dhoni retired from all cricket, all international cricket. Yeah, and... And I wonder, I wonder how much the conclusion of that Brisbane test would have been similar over there with, um, with big groups of people gathering around TVs and, and cutting loose afterwards. I hope some people had a good day. Mark Martella, who I think I said sounded like a member of parliament, no, maybe a state member of parliament, $21.11, generous pledge. And you nailed it, Adam. You, I, this is a some lateral thinking I wouldn't have had, but you said that's a date, that's the 21st of November and it's Justin Langer's birthday on his birthday, and it was Mark said it was indeed Justin Langer's birthday and Mark's birthday importantly, also the only time in my life that someone has told me that my name is very satisfying to say says Mark, so thanks Jeff for that however, as far as running for office, I did become head of the social club for the Hay Park Redbacks Cricket Club and that is as far as I dare go <laughs> well, as, as Dermot Perriton likes to quote a man's got to know his limitations so well done to you Mark <laughs> uh, Mark, if we're in Perth next year for a test match get us down to the uh, Hay Park Redbacks Cricket Club, we'd love to hang out and have a beer. All right, next up, 5.15, Chris Arkell. Uh, the clue was to do with pads and pies, and we thought that might have something to do with Vernon Philander, given he hits a lot of pads and he eats a lot of pies. But Chris said it was Mark Elam, who was, uh, of course, former England all-rounder, who was called a pie chucker by a South African journalist when he was playing. But he did take five for 15 against Zimbabwe at Kimberley in 2000 in a triangular trophy where all four of the wickets were leg before wicket and it was England's best bowling figures at the time in one day international cricket so he wasn't uh, he solved it for us Chris but other people guessed it as well but yes because he was called a pie chucker and then took a fifer with all leg befores and it was England's best figures Chris Arkell's 515 has been solved. Credits to Debashish Biswas as well who got in the inbox and guessed that stone dead 
Uh, Dane Hanstead, very good at guessing other people's pledges. Um, but we did solve Dane, Sir Graham Vimpani at Wangaratta, classic Adam Collins areas. Oh. This one um, got to wax lyrical about both Vimpani and, and Wangaratta. Dane said, a game that had many test greats playing, yet they were all usurped by Vimpani. There has been one other professional game at Wang Showgrounds since. In 2006, Victoria played New South Wales in a List A game. Michael Clark, Stuart Clark, Kadich, Bollinger, Cam White, Dave Hussey and Phil Jakes, who had just made his test debut on Boxing Day the week before. Dane says, I remember Brad Haddon hitting a huge six over the scoreboard, Michael Clark getting a threefer and Michael Klinger hitting a classy hundred that almost got the Vicks over the line, chasing 260. This was also the list A and professional debut of 18-year-old Moses Enriquez, a game full of history. Thank you, Dane. Thank you, Dane. That second mention of Cam White on the show. And, yeah, let's get... Uh, professional cricket back to Wangaratta. That's a campaign the final word can get behind. Uh, 897 uh, from Richard Johnson. Uh, Richard wished us a Merry Christmas and uh, thanks us for what we've done uh, throughout the course of 2020. He's bought your book for Christmas, Jeff. He bought it for his oh, dad. So everyone is loving your book at the moment. Uh, he'll be commandeering it from his dad when he's done. Uh, read the Nerd Pledge of 897. We were spot on with Ben Hilford House. What a bowler he was. Wish he'd got the chance for at least one more test wicket to bring his tally to an even 100. Don't we all, Richard? <laughs> Don't we all? I think we're all going to look at Ben Hilfenhouse's wicket column for many years and just wish that he was given a sneaky test match. His final tour was in the West Indies, no, it was in uh, South Africa in 13-14 in where he was kind of the, uh, one of the squad bowlers and in hindsight I wish I had just chucked him a cap but they were too busy winning that series and it wasn't mm. to be. Uh, Rory Seymour's 175 which I identified as a uh, county championship score made by David Capel. And, you know, I don't, don't like to talk myself up on this show, but uh, Rory's, Rory's, this is Rory's words. Jeff nailed it straight away. Pew, pew, pew. I'm doing finger guns just down the screen as we speak. Rory says, David Capel's son, Jordan, is one of my closest and oldest friends. So his untimely passing really hit home. I signed up for Nerd Pledge the day after his funeral, which absolutely filled the streets of the Northamptonshire village where he lived and showed how loved he was locally. Not only a Northants legend as a player and coach, he was also a lovely man and a great father. And I love this story from Rory. He says, I even had the pleasure of playing one game of cricket with him when he wanted to play a game with Jordan. He wasn't best pleased when my dad, making up the numbers, nicked a wide one behind, three overs away from selfishing a draw. <laughs> the fact he got so upset at losing two league points showed his notorious competitive streak. <laughs> Outstanding. Thank you, Rory. He goes on to uh, thank us for our podcast and, uh, and, and says that we're helping him get through lockdown 3.0. Uh, I'm glad we're able to do that. It's obviously such a rough time in England at the moment. So a cheerio to all of our friends in that part of the world. Hopefully this lockdown ends sooner rather than later. Our last revisit today is from Alistair Wilson. Now, this was a double header. We've already been talking about 160 as it relates to uh, Northern Ireland and where hopefully we'll resolve that in the next week. Last week we talked about 160 also in, in the context of Alistair Wilson, the other member of the doubleheader. Uh, we said Mike Gadding in the 1985 Ashes, a score he made at Old Trafford and we were correct. Alistair confirmed that Mike Gadding was one of his early heroes before he became more politically aware. He's been watching back some of the old highlights to kind of compare what he uh, saw at the ground that day compared to reality and he was looking at Jonathan Agnew's batting and how he got the Smith and some other bits and pieces and trying to compare what he saw then, uh, whether it marries up with today. He says,
says that the big screens at the ground, well, they weren't there in those days. He sat a long way back at cover, which is why there's a bit of an inconsistency there. But uh, what he does remember correctly is that Mike Gadding made 160 and it was a, a formative experience for him during the 1985 Ashes. We're glad to get it right. I will say that Alistair Wilson sent me down quite a wormhole because he's, he's identified a YouTube channel by a guy called DM Mordecai who's been uploading lots of highlights of these mid-80s Ashes tests. And so when Alistair was talking about Jonathan Agnew scoring a run by having a ball hit middle stump and not, and not knock the bales off um, and then ricochet away, I had to see it. So I, I went back and watched and that indeed did happen. It was Jeff Lawson bowling to him and Haggis had a swing and missed it and somehow didn't get bowled and, and got through for a run. <laughs> um, so so yeah, well done to him from an inside edge. Alistair's memory that it was it was uh, it was Craig McDermott bowling a Yorker, but that was not the case. So, uh, it goes to show that uh, oral history has its limits, and people's memories don't <laughs> don't always tally with the record. As we found with Kerry O'Keefe's recollection of some of his own cricketing exploits um, the other week on the show. And Jeff, before we round things off, a few pieces of correspondence. Uh, initially, we have a plea from Kieran O'Kane. So, Kieran's explaining that. He's lived in Germany for the last couple of years and was watching England's test matches on a friend's Sky UK account. But an unintended consequence of Brexit is that UK TV providers no longer let you use their apps in the EU, so he's suddenly screwed. There's, of course, the legal streams online, as he explains, but he's happy and willing to pay for the pleasure of watching England collapse when batting yet again, he explains. There seems to be a wide range of providers online from India who do the IPL and they did the World Cup last year but yet to find the legal way to follow England's test matches on television in Germany and he wants to know whether we have any ideas so I said we'd shake the tree for him if you're living in mainland Europe and you have been watching England legally let us know and we'll relay to Kieran O'Kane how to do that. The Cowan brothers have been corresponding with the dead ball debate and I'm, I'm very pleased to say that my, my instinctive answer to this question ended up being right because Fred Cowan has dug through all the relevant law subsections and concluded that I was spot on in his words that if a batter is given not out and stays not out after DRS, then the runs or extras scored from that ball do still count. Right. The ball is ruled dead if the on-field decision is out but then overturned on DRS. So we're often talking about this in relation to league buyers, but it could still also be the case that, say, a player gets an inside edge into their pad, yep. is taking the winning run, is given out incorrectly by the umpire who doesn't know there's been an edge, challenges that, it's overturned, they're given not out, but they're still not credited with the run that they would have scored if the correct decision had been made. So there is still a way in which uh, you know, a batting team can be screwed over by the, bat, by the wrong decision. Even if they get the decision reversed in a, in a white ball game, it doesn't win them the match um, if, if that's what they need okay. with one delivery remaining. So, uh, yeah, we've got to the bottom of it. Fred says that's what the laws say and uh, we were right on the show. Sounds like that might be one for the MCC Cricket Committee when they go and make the next version of the little blue book, time will tell. And an email to finish from Ollie. Now, Jeff, you'll like this. Ollie uh, works for a PR agency and, and part of his job is managing the social media accounts for a variety of TV shows and films and so on. One of those is Peaky Blinders. As, of course, we've seen in the last few weeks, Shane Warne's been talking about Peaky Blinders a number of times per day on Fox because he's mm -hmm. wearing uh, the flat cap. He's the first person to ever wear a flat cap, you see. So because he's the first person to ever right. wear a flat cap, it's got to be talked about every day. And 
I suppose mm. the only cultural reference point is a TV show that most people have been watching over the last six years. He might have been binging it during lockdown. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, there's been yeah. a lot of conversation about Peaky Blinders and, and the flat cap because he's the first person to ever wear a flat cap. So, yeah. Well, when you, when, when you get a thing, you know, it's like high school when, when you see one of your contemporaries decide that this is going to be my thing now. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be the guy who wears a fedora. You know, I'm, I'm the fedora <laughs> guy. That's my thing. Or, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the guy who's like super into MMA and talks about it every day or whatever it might be. So yeah, he's got a thing now and, and that's good. That's it's good to it's good to be distinctive as 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 the champion seven oh eight wicket holder. So Ollie listener to the show has been essentially corresponding with Shane Warne through the Peaky Blinders social media accounts because it keeps coming up in in all of the posts. So he's quite enjoyed that as now you up. a part of his yeah. He said his favourite thing appears to be this is Warne leaving a heart a, a line of heart emojis as a comment. In this strange turn of events, I'm now interacting with him on a semi-regular basis, albeit behind the mask of a social media account for a TV show. I'm not sure how I could have ever begun to explain this to my younger self, but I'm sure he would have been thrilled. Well, Ollie, we're thrilled for you. And he finishes off by saying, it's not quite Sachin, it's your birthday, but nevertheless, I'll keep my eyes peeled and let you know how this develops. I'm tipping, Ollie, it's going to develop for quite some time. So enjoy it, embrace it, Mm. and keep us posted. Well, well, what happens in the DMs stays in the DMs. That's uh, that's that's my that's my fundamental uh, position on it. But you know, we have we have talked about what can happen in the DMs earlier in the show today. So tread carefully, Ollie, and. Uh, carry a big stick. It's time for us to say goodbye on Storytime for another week. In future episodes, now the test series is over and we have just a little bit more time back than we've had over the last month, we'll be continuing to roll out our Calling the Shots full interviews on the back of Storytime app. So that will be coming as of next Saturday, Sunday, whenever we get around to recording Storytime number 33. But for Storytime number 32, that's it. If you've enjoyed the tales we've told today and you want to get in on the act, patreon.com forward slash the final word. You can find us on all the other platforms, Twitter. Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram as well. If you're not following us there, that'd be lovely. If you've been enjoying what we're doing on YouTube or you're new to the show via um, what we've done on YouTube, that's going to continue to be a part of what we do uh, over, well, hopefully a a long time into the future. So find us there, Final Word Cricket at YouTube. Thanks as always to Bad Producer Productions. We're proud members of their label, badproducerproductions.com, to see the other great work that they do, helmed by Jay Muir and Astrid Edwards, and we're edited a couple of times per week, many more times per week than that during the India series it must be said by Dave Collins so thank you DC you're an absolute marvel and Jeff that's where we'll leave it thank you for listening this has been the final word story time I'm Adam Collins he's Jeff Lennon let's do it all again on the weekly show next week so you know what I meant I had to go about it right it